Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I have an interesting piece of information for you today. It's been many, many years where I had this feeling that there was this upper echelon of market makers, of masters, of people that were potentially manipulating markets, industries, interfering, exploiting financial markets, sabotaging them, that would bypass good faith human efforts. And I heard about a book called The Quants, How a New Breed of Math Whizzes Conquered Wall Street and Nearly Destroyed It by Scott Patterson, a staff reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And I had to call Scott over to its rainmaking time to explain the essence of this book and what we need to know about high-frequency trading and who these quants are. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Scott Patterson to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for having me. I want to know what led you to write this book and to research this subject. Uh, uh, in the summer of 2007, there was this extremely unusual event. Uh, a lot of these quant hedge funds that uh, operate beneath the surface of the market, most people never know what they're doing or have never even heard of these uh, these funds, suddenly had a, uh, a huge blow-up. It came out of nowhere, and uh, I, some of my sources on Wall Street started telling me about a few of these people, and uh, one in particular caught my caught my attention. It was this uh, very secretive uh, proprietary trading operation at the investment bank Morgan Stanley. These guys are uh, so secretive at Morgan Stanley that I, I started calling around to some of my contacts at Morgan, and they'd never even heard of these guys. So uh, it turned out that they were the largest prop desk at Morgan Stanley. They were running something around 5 to $6 billion for the bank using uh, quantitative mathematical formulas and and computers, and uh, they had just gone through a, a really volatile period. They'd lost about $600 million in the course of a few days. Um, they were run by a guy named Peter Muller, who was just sort of fascinating uh, on the face of it from who he is. He's, he's uh, sort of, uh, you know, he, he's a guy who had moved from New York to, New, uh, to California, actually, and kind of uh, turn into a something of a hippie and a surfer um, but he was also really good at math and somehow found himself into this in this quant world and came back to New York was working at Morgan Stanley um, at one point he, he got really into music he started playing his uh, electric piano in the subways of New York City busking for change even though he was worth hundreds of millions of dollars so you had this combination of this very secret group uh, and this sort of charismatic person running it that, to me, just screamed out for a story. And I, I wrote a story. It was a page one story in the journal. And uh, from there, I started, you know, sort of picking away the layers of this quant world and, and learned about a lot of other people and, uh, you know, learned what they were doing. And, it, and I, st- I started realizing that these guys have taken over Wall Street um, in so many ways, and, uh, and and that's sort of how the books got started. The quantitative models we know from climate change, for example, are a lot of the times wrong. Basically, whatever you put in, that's what you get out. So it very much depends on what you're factoring in 
garbage right. in, garbage out. Right, gigos. <laughs> yeah, so these simulations, they're supposed to be used as tools to look for what-if scenarios, but it's been mm-hmm. turned into the truth in Wall Street, correct? Mm-hmm. Explain right. that. Right, Yeah, I, you know, it's it's a debate that goes on amongst the quants all the time. Is it, you know, was it the models or was it the bad data that went into the models? And um, it's obviously a combination of both. But I think built into a lot of these models are assumptions about the way that the market behaves. And uh, in the book, I call that uh, the truth. Um, it's, uh, it's this belief that there is, uh, by using historical patterns and uh, feeding those patterns into models that are, uh, uh, they, they have certain inputs like volatility, for instance. Um, how volatile the market actually is. That's something that is often just, uh, you know, a, a number that these models are assuming. And, you know, when you look at the history of these models, that uh, the, the volatility numbers are dramatically underestimate uh, how bizarre, how wild, how chaotic the market can be. And I think a lot of times that's that's actually self-serving because if, the models actually uh, had inputs saying the, the market could be extremely volatile. You just can't bet as much money. And that's what it comes down to is the ability. The models are, uh, are tweaked in order to maximize potential profits. Um, but that is uh, laying the groundwork for a huge blowup. Wouldn't you say the quantitative models are revealing the fact that the human factor, as the essence, as the core of it, has been taken out of the equation? Mm-hmm. And that represents the X factor, therefore. Right. Correct? Yes. I, I, you know, that's, that's one of the big problems is, you know, they're, they're using uh, quantitative formulas that are assume, assuming that human beings are going to act rationally. Um, it's, uh, it's a huge theory that it dominates, uh, the way that these guys work. It comes out of the universities. It's called rational expectations. Um, it's also a key component of the efficient market hypothesis. The, the idea that the market is going to behave itself and, uh, and act in a way that is predictable. And if you don't believe that, uh, you can't use math and, and models to, you to make giant bets on the market and the reality is and i know that i mean to me i was really shocked when i learned that this is what these people think but because when you know a normal person thinks about the stock market you think greed and and fear and panics and bubbles and you know all sorts of stuff that aren't rational at all and uh you know that that's i think what happened especially in, in August of 2007, when a lot of these quant hedge funds started melting down, they, you know, their models were actually operating in reverse. The exact opposite of what they were predicting was happening. So uh, they, you know, it was definitely an eye-opening experience for a lot of these people. I think it's fascinating that the human factor in all of this has been taken out of the central equation of quantitative models. For example, when Steve Jobs got ill a couple of years ago, Apple stock dropped like 100 points. Mm-hmm. When that word got out, that's how reflexive, quote, the market and humans are. They mm-hmm. thought that the main leader was going to be gone and the company would not be worth as much. So people fled the stock. 
And I think if you look at that as a microcosm, after reading your book, when you see the high-frequency trades that are going on, and you say they're between three and four milliseconds a transaction, is that true? It's actually faster than that. You know, I, uh, I've i learned more about high-frequency trading since uh, since I wrote the book and have written fairly extensively about it for the Wall Street Journal. And these guys are actually measuring trades now in... Uh, uh, by something called a picosecond, which is a one trillionth of a second. So it's no longer a millionth of a second. It's a trillionth of a second. Right. <laughs> How can uh, that not yeah. alter markets, Scott? Well, How can I, that not alter and impact industries? It, it does. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a big debate going on right now. Um, why, why do these funds need to be doing this? Why do they need to be sending so many orders to the markets and the the exchanges like uh, Nasdaq and others like this uh, because they get they get to charge a small fee for every order that they take. So they're actually encouraging this behavior. And some you know people think that there's there's a lot of risk being built up. Um, the, the high frequency firms doing this claim that there is no risk and that. Uh, you know they they're on top of everything and and you know they would be the first ones to lose out if anything went wrong so they're very careful you know but I, I think we've all heard that argument before so it's uh, it, it was really mind blowing I mean and and these high frequency firms have uh, really taken over the how how these markets work um, there's estimates that say that the high high frequency Funds account for sixty to seventy percent of the volume on the U.S. stock market. That's frightening, absolutely frightening. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since two thousand eight, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut. The Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Speak about what a dark pool is. This was an important part of your book. By the way, uh, what shocked me was arbitrage. I thought arbitrage was illegal. Uh, no, arbitrage is a is perfectly legal, and it, and it makes sense. I, I think maybe uh, you know there could be 
some nefarious, uh, you know, ways of doing arbitrage. But, you know, basically arbitrage is just figuring out that one, uh, you know, the same security is priced differently in different, different parts of the market. Right. And you, you buy one and you short the other until the, they come together. And, and it is a perfectly legitimate way of, of uh, investing. And it makes, it actually can make the market uh, more rational and more efficient. Um, it can be dangerous because if you always believe that those securities are, are going to uh, come together, and this is something that the, the giant hedge fund uh, long-term capital management did in in the late 90s, uh, their entire investment strategy was based on arbitrage and finding out where discrepancies in different securities were around the world and betting that they would converge. And they ended up making using massive leverage to make those bets. And then something unexpected happened, and the arbitrage that they were expecting did not occur. It actually went in reverse, just like the quant funds in August 2007. Um, this is what happens when people panic. Uh, the rational stuff doesn't happen. Um, so, re- so arbitrage is a you know tried and true method of making money, but it also can be very dangerous when you're using a lot of leverage. Um, but you asked about the dark pools. These these are electronic uh, crossing networks. Uh, they're off exchange uh, networks where shares tra- change hands um, in the dark. <laughs> Basically, they're pools of stocks, and they uh, they started up. Um, some time ago, in order to uh, for big firms like pension funds to trade large blocks of stocks, uh, and, and that it made sense because if a pension fund wanted to buy, uh, you know, say a hundred million worth of Microsoft, and that that uh, you know was got around on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, that could cause the price to move. So they were trying to uh, create a, a method where stock big blocks could tra- uh, change hands without causing the price to move too much. How do you become a player in a dark pool? Um, you, well, almost anybody can be a player in a dark pool. You know, any investment fund, uh, you know, they all use it. The, these things have proliferated so much that, you know, if you have a, if you have a, a mutual fund, there's no question that your uh, portfolio manager is investing in dark pools. Uh, you know, they, they need to because these things have become a major part of the market. 10% of all stock volume now happens in dark pools. Uh, what the SEC is concerned about and, and other critics are concerned about is that there are, you know, because these things are uh, largely unregulated and uh, the trades happen in the dark that there are uh, firms that are gaming the trades in, in the dark pools. And it's right now almost impossible to know if that's actually happening. And, I, and I've talked to a number of people who think it is happening and have seen it happen. Um, basically what, what you know, a high-frequency fund can see something happening on, you know, someplace like the New York Stock Exchange where a stock is moving, and it takes uh, a a fraction of a second for that price to get to the dark pool, the high-frequency fund can calculate that movement faster than the time it takes for that information to get to the dark pool so they can front-run that order. 
and uh, you know this is something that I think the SEC is becoming aware of, but uh, it's it's pretty scary, and and this is just a, you know the uh, you know just scratching the surface. Who really knows what's going on in in these uh, markets with where things are you know happening so fast and in the dark? Um, so it is it is a big concern. How does it alter industries, or how could it alter industries? This kind of activity. I think that you know gaming is something that uh, it, it affects the ability of companies to raise money essentially in in the most efficient way if their if their stocks are being um, manipulated uh, detrimentally um, that could make it dif- more difficult for a company to issue shares and uh, get as much capital as they would like um, but you could also have the reverse you could have uh, a uh, a fund causing stocks to go up um, more than they should, and then the company could raise more. So it's it's difficult to really know uh, how you know what the impact is on industries. But I, I think that uh, where and th- you could see a real impact is on you know the the portfolios of uh, you know people trying to save for their retirements. Um, that and that's a real concern. Is our uh, are these super fast traders, sophisticated mathematical traders, uh, picking people's pockets by, you know, it will be just pennies per trade, but it can really add up. And, uh, you know, this is something I think that a lot of people are trying to figure out is what is the, uh, what is the fallout of all this trading? And, and there is, you know, when there, there is a positive side to some of this. I don't want to ignore that because, the the trading cost, the actual cost of uh, transacting a trade on the market has come down fairly dramatically in the past 10 years or so. And one of the reasons for that is because of these high-frequency uh, traders, they uh, you're essentially bypassing the middlemen who used to be the brokers for trades, um, and those guys charged a fairly high fee. The high-frequency firms, because they're able to do this quicker, are uh, not charging as high of a fee. So, uh, so there is a benefit, and even firms like Vanguard Group, uh, the the big mutual fund company, have said you know that they think that it, this is a good thing. But I, I think that there are costs embedded in the system that a lot of people aren't seeing, and, uh, and I think that'll come out soon. Who's making the decisions when a high-frequency trader is trading? Is it the mm-hmm. software that's being programmed to execute the decisions? Is it automated, or it's is it the trader? It's completely automated. It, it's, Are you serious? It, yeah, it's, uh, it, these, these things happen way faster than a human being could uh, contemplate. You know, these, these are algorithms, um, and you know it's something that i've uh, i've found is that the you know the entire stock market now i not all, maybe 70% or 80% of it trading is uh conducted by algorithms so even your mutual fund manager is probably going to be using algorithms um to trade because of the way that the market is structured now you can't just send an order to uh, the New York Stock Exchange and expected to get filled, it needs to be uh, broken up into little pieces and sent around to all these different parts of the market. Um, a lot, and a lot of this is because of the the presence of the high frequency firms uh, 
um, if if you were to come out and uh, and try to buy, say, ten thousand shares of Google, um, it's going to cause the stock to move because the high frequency firms have algorithms that are uh, sort of like sniffer algorithms looking for trades like that. They're going to cause the price to move up really quickly. So it's a it's a game within the game now. You, the the traders are trying to hide from the high frequency firms, and the high frequency firms are trying to see what the traders are are doing. And it's uh, it's a complete transformation of the market. To be honest, it's and, and I don't think a lot of people understand this. It's morphed into something else, hasn't it? Yeah, it's uh, the computers are going head to head. It's you know. Kind of like uh, I don't know, Cyberdyne Systems and the Terminator. <laughs> People are using computers, and and that's that's it. That's what that's the direction the market's going. And and the you know what a lot of firms are doing now is they're uh, there. There's this thing called co-location, and essentially what that is is getting a uh, a server, a very powerful computer server, and setting it up right next to an exchange. And so that that's co it's co-located with the exchange, so that the orders are sent immediately to the exchange as fast as possible. Um, last summer, I went out to this new facility that the New York Stock Exchange is building in New Jersey, the size of three football fields. It's going to be filled with computers that are co-located with the New York Stock Exchange, and uh, will be processing. Massive amounts of orders. It'll be, you know, it's it's a huge endeavor, and there are actually a lot of these other data centers in mostly located in New Jersey, where other exchanges are. They set up big computers and they co-locate uh, all these hedge funds and high frequency firms and and mutual funds and everybody. Uh, banks are co-located. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. Um, and this is just this is what the market is now. It's a big computer. It's not people calling up each other on the phone and, you know, saying I want to buy, you know, a million shares of IBM. It's pressing a button and, and having it sent to these data centers, and it's all happened really quickly. And uh, the SEC and other regulators are trying to keep up with it, um, but it's just this is the future. There's no stopping it. Wow. Then there's probably no way to really regulate it, is there? Every one of these quant activities is going on in major infrastructure in the financial industry. Definitely. Yes, and we haven't even touched on derivatives. I know. <laughs> you know that, that's uh, you know another area that I explore in, in the book is a lot yeah. the derivatives and and those you know derivatives had a, a big uh, really at the center of the meltdown and uh, these are quant creations. These are mathematical. Uh, constructs that are very complicated and involve, uh, you know, shifting money around between parties in very complex ways and, and, uh, you know, credit fault swaps, obviously, you know, everybody, I remember a couple of years ago, I would ask my friends or family and say, have you guys heard of a credit default swap? And they'd say, no, what are you talking about? Um, because I knew, I, you know, I, I could see in, in covering the markets that these things were becoming very popular and uh, and dangerous. And people that I knew, you know, I would say, what do you think the biggest risk to the system is? And they would say, well, these credit fault swaps are going all over the place and, 
um, even nobody really knew how big it was getting. Um, but uh, you know, it, it hasn't even it hasn't slowed down. I, I looked just the other day at a, a chart showing the growth of derivatives on Wall Street, and it, it's only gotten bigger um, in the past few years. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. I just want to take a minute or two and share with you that we really appreciate you listening and sharing with your friends and loved ones and colleagues. And if you like the show, show it. Write something really cool, really nice on It's Rainmaking Time at iTunes. We have our own store there. And like our Facebook page. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, feel free to do that. We send a bi-monthly newsletter out. And if you like it, share it with all your friends. Another thing we wanted to share with you is that somebody stepped in and started to do transcriptions for us. We have some transcriptions already done. If you would be interested, please drop us a line. We will be posting the transcriptions that are ready for sale. That's another way to assist the show. And for those of you who are in a position to donate $10 a month or $20 a month or more, please do so. Action speaks louder than words. We appreciate you, and thanks again for listening to It's Rainmaking Time. And back to the show. Didn't Bernanke give $700 billion, and when he was asked, what was it in? And he said, credit default swaps. Mm-hmm. Most of us did not understand what that meant. Yeah. That he can't figure out what it went to, because it went into credit default swaps. So it was like another matrix it went into, and then whatever happened with <laughs> that was dispersed outward. Right. Did you understand that? Well, you know, basically, you know, a lot of it was credit default swaps. Um, AIG is a a perfect example. Um, What AIG was doing was they were entering one side of the uh, credit default swap trade, which was a credit default swap is basically uh, insurance on a bond. Um, It's really not that complicated, although the, the... the term sounds uh, devilishly complex, but you know it's a uh, credit. Your it's a bet on credit defaulting. Um, so AIG was writing the insurance. They were saying if this uh, debt defaults, we are going to pay up. And a lot of what the uh, the debt that they were underwriting was. Uh, was were subprime mortgage bonds or uh, collateralized debt obligations? If you want to get it to another level of uh, quant complexity, um, these these were you know probably the most toxic security Wall Street has ever created, and and AIG was underwriting billions and billions of of this stuff with no. Uh, idea of how risky it was. So when those defaults happened and AIG uh, couldn't meet their obligations, um, they were essentially bankrupt and the the government needed to step in and back those debts because if they didn't, uh, they, they owed money to Goldman Sachs or uh, a lot of other uh, firms. Those banks would have to write down their own assets and it would have rippled through the entire financial system. So, so by the government coming in and, and saying, we'll make good on those bets, the other banks didn't need to write stuff down. But there's been a lot of criticism over that action because uh, basically the government was right, uh, guaranteeing those debts 100%. Instead of saying, okay, you know, the, 
you know, you lost money on some of uh, on these uh, trades, so we're going to only give you eighty percent of it. You know, to to the banks, um, they gave them all the money. So uh, it's like a dysfunctional you know, system where you actually cover the gamblers' losses. Right. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that definitely is what's what's happened. It and uh, you know, they call it moral hazard, and it seems to have only gotten worse. Have you ever been concerned releasing this book, even though it's a New York Times bestseller, for your well-being? Um, you know, when I was writing it, I got kind of paranoid. Um, and, uh, you know, because I, I think that there there's a lot of things that people are trying to uh, hide on Wall Street. And, and maybe, uh, you know, I thought... Um, People might think that I'm digging into stuff that I shouldn't, and and then when it came out, I thought that uh, there would be a backlash. But I think that a lot of these guys that I wrote about are just pref- they just prefer to remain quiet about it because I, I think that if they uh, if they came out and said anything, or you know, th- they might draw more attention to it. So I think they're just hoping it dies and goes away. <laughs> I, I want to be clear: like I'm not writing about any illegal activities. That any of these, but I'm not saying that any of them are doing anything illegal. They were they were really uh, doing. They were operating within within the laws. They were just doing things that were a lot riskier than uh, it seemed to them. And they were, you know, part of what I'm trying to say is this whole uh, system that has built up over decades has in- encouraged this. It's a it's a belief system. It's an ideology. And uh, and it's it's taken over Wall Street, um, but there's nothing illegal about it, as far as I I know. I mean, I think there were some illegal activities that uh, went on, um, some very bad behavior, at least in terms of you know structuring some of these these deals, the, the subprime deals, that and and people are still looking into that stuff. You write about this culture of alpha. Uh-huh. Is it a culture of alpha or is it a cult of alpha? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe is, the quants are a cult. Cult like it is very cult like. I mean, they they have their own language. You know, it takes it takes a lot of time to figure out what these guys are saying. You know, I think that's part part of the hardest uh, challenge for me was figuring out when you when you talk to these people, they've got all this jargon that they use. And, you know, eventually I was able to decipher it because I'm not a quant. I, I'm a reporter who just learned about this world and had access to it. Um, but, it, you know, I read a lot of books and eventually was able to, you know, make some sense of it. And they have this thing called Alpha. They worship it. It's some, to me, it seems like something out of the Kabbalah or, uh, you know, it's uh, this belief that certain people are endowed with the ability to, uh, to beat the market consistently. It's also a mathematical measurement of how much you can beat the market by. But it very, it seems very mystical when you, you know, uh, the more you learn about it, it's almost like, you know, being a, you know, a superhero or something. Interesting. How come you think it is that they were willing to talk with you? There must be something in you that engendered trust dialogue, et cetera, to come up with the synthesis of the quants as a book. Uh, what is it? I I knew some of these people beforehand. Um, I had written about some of their strategies 
uh, before things really went awry for them. I also it started the book in uh, late 2007, early 2008, before a lot of them really had their major problems. So they didn't know how bad things were going to get. I had a sense that all of this was not over, um, you know, that bad things were coming, and I, I had no idea how bad it would get. Um, so I was able to learn a lot about them uh, as, a, as, you know, the big blow-up of late 2008 was coming. And then when that happened, they really stopped talking to me because at that, at that point they did not want to be part of a book. Um, and then and then what happened was uh, a lot of them had lost so much money that they started uh, laying people off. And uh, I got I was able to get in touch with some of the you know people who had had been laid off and learned a lot more about the inner workings of the these groups and and some of the stuff that had happened. Did you get a call from any of the people mentioned in the book after the book came out? A, a few, or some <laughs> angry emails. <laughs> like, how dare you? Yeah, I mean, they, uh, you know, they they feel like I may have betrayed them. Um, but my feeling is, you know, first of all, you know, these, these are you know these are big boys. They know what they're doing. Um, they chose to talk to me. I'm a with the Wall Street Journal, and I'm going to only report what uh, what I see. And if bad things happen, and I learn about bad things and big losses, and you know, I'm going to re- I'm going to put it in the paper. Um, you know, I wrote about Cliff Asnes, uh, a head head of a giant hedge fund in, in Greenwich, um, who's a very smart guy, very charismatic and engaging, but he has this explosive temper, and he would smash computers and he would berate employees and um you know very temperamental guy and you know blew up at a poker game that these guys have uh and uh, you know i put it all in the book and he he was really angry that i was doing that and thought it had nothing to do with the the book but i as i tried to explain to him it's it it, it works within the book because you guys are all betting on the, the market becoming, you know, behaving in a rational way, and yet you, you guys are crazy. <laughs> you know, you yourself show how human beings can be very volatile and unpredictable, and that's human nature. And, uh, you know, it, it points to a, uh, you know, a flaw in the models. Wow, that's very courageous of you. Has the Wall Street Journal gotten any calls like, you better cut that out, you better quit promoting that book, you should fire that guy? <laughs> uh, I hope not. Has there been any pressure? I, I haven't heard anything like that. It, it may have happened, but I, I, you know, my editors would never uh, give in anything like that. Um, they, they would, they, they trust me and, and know that I do my job. And people complain, you know, all the time about our reporting um but you know our editors are always behind us that's awesome ladies and gentlemen we have been talking with scott patterson the author of the new york times bestseller the quants how a new breed of math whizzes conquered wall street and nearly destroyed it scott patterson i look forward to having you back thank you for publishing this book and researching it and letting us know about high frequency trading the players involved the culture associated with it and the inner workings of it. We thank you for being here. Thanks a lot for having me.